So Johnny's uh, got this release schedule. Things are working out. The tracks are out there. The records are being released. They're just not as hot as they once were. They're not flops, but they're not white hot, number one, out of the gate, six, eight weeks at the top of the charts. The ballads seem to run their course. The jump blues weren't taken with the male crowd as much as they want to to replace any of the female-centric focus. The touring crew is still out there on the road. They make their way back to Houston, mid-1954. Johnny Board is the band that they're playing with, and they cut another five songs in Bill's ACA studio, all written and performed by the band at that end time, right? So that's interesting to me. It's like, like any artist, you play with somebody on the road, you know each other, it works out, and then you go and they cut a couple of records. So he's got a bunch of stuff in the can. So that's pretty interesting. Thoughts? Concerns? Well, I mean, the whole idea with writing and performing with the band isn't that that unusual, especially since it's Johnny Otis and his band. At this point, these tracks they just did were Johnny Board. The ones in L.A. were Johnny Otis. These ones were Johnny Board. Johnny Board produced them, but he's playing with Johnny Otis. Right, so Johnny Otis is playing on these tracks. That could, I, that was not clear. It was not clear from the. It just said you've all written and performed with the band. I'm assuming that's yeah. his band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you Otis could was be. in his band. Yeah, he was his drummer. Uh, drummer vibes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because I mean it makes sense, but like they're starting to get the machine down. Right. Yeah. They got the release schedule down. They've got the tour schedule down. They've been doing it for two years. Now they realize, oh, I shouldn't just go and record one song. Let's put a bunch of stuff in the can. Let's mm -hmm. make this work and then continue this process, right? Well, and as he gets more famous and he's playing more shows, his ability to go to the studio, his schedule-wise dwindles, right? Yeah, well, so, unless you're flying by airplane. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting piece, but... It's sort of running out of gas. And I don't know, what wasn't clear to me is what was replacing Johnny Ace. If his songs were not hits, if they were mid-chart, who, who would have been hot at that point? Mm -hmm. Perhaps it was the other stuff that Johnny Otis was doing. Mm -hmm. If it was Jackie Wilson and uh, uh, Etta James... Or Little Richard. Or Little Richard. Yeah. With all due deference to my friend Johnny Ace, Mr. Alexander, I would rather listen to Etta James and Jackie Wilson. And I think maybe the record buying public was probably the same. Yeah. Although I have a feeling those records are yet to come. I mean, he. It, your comment is that he, he eventually discovers these people. I don't think... I mean, Etta James wasn't recording in 54, was she? She must have been right then. I mean, she was pretty young, too. She was a teenager. Yeah. I don't know. So here's the point. They're, they're going. The machine is there. It's not producing the hits that they want it to do, but they've got a lot of backlog and they've got some product and they've got a machine. Things are going well. Not as great as they were. A little bit of the shine is off. Johnny's been on the road at this point for a few years. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a family life. He's tired. What happens next? The state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era, or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway, and up in the hills and getting down in the holler. 
So raise a glass of sippin' whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made of by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. All right, back to the story at hand, right? Uh, and so the viability of the 45 RPM uh, record was still up in the air in 1945, which 1954, excuse me, excuse me, which seems in hindsight to be completely insane. Just the portability, yeah. the durability, the, the, the fidelity of these records. But it was still insane, right? So we talked a lot about why jukebox providers loved it uh, because of that durability. Radio was still slow to adapt because they had to buy new machines, right? So the industry is no different than that switch that we've made so many times in the past. Uh, Multi-speed players still weren't a thing quite yet, but things were coming through. The publishing companies obviously didn't care because they didn't care about formats. All they cared about was uh, publishing and, and getting... Um, the songwriting royalties, uh, but the format war on on wax was very quickly picking up speed. I punned. I made a pun there. <laughs> and I, I I guess it was mm-hmm. lo- losing speed. It was losing speed. <laughs> it yeah, was losing speed. So this is what's fun at the time, right? So tradition is reigning. R and B records, race records were still being pressed at seventy eight RPMs, even though more and more things were at forty fives. But during this transition phase, DJs and publishers were actually bootlegging their own versions of records on acetate or on vinyl to whatever speed that they have. So you're a station and you're invested in this new format. You've mothballed your old 78s or 78 players and you got 45s coming in and they're going and getting illegal bootlegs remastered at a new speed. Hmm. Uh, And that was really fascinating to me. They said, hey, we want to do this. And so there's got to be a lot of really cool records out there that are bootlegs Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, Fun, quick personal story. And I forget the guy's name, but man, um, mastering of seven inches. Uh, So this is before... United used to master in-house or maybe they mastered in-house and it was like super expensive. There was a guy on Music Row that would master 45s for, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, whatever it was. And so I went one time when we were doing a record and uh, and I was like, all right, well, let me just watch this. And this is, dude was like 75 years old and he had a tiny little studio the size of this. It was a little office. And all he would do was take whatever format you gave him, CD, and then he would literally cut it into the lathe to be sent to the masters, to be made into mothers and stamps, et cetera. And he's like, do you want to see it? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because like the actual transfer of sound in, in record grooves to me still makes literally zero sense, right? Ones and zeros actually makes a little bit of sense, but how micro movements in a walled canyon that is millimeters tall allows for such a level of multiple sounds simultaneously, I can't get it. So he's like, look in the microscope. So I look in the microscope and all I see is this tiny squiggly, what appears to be like pencil line. Mm -hmm. And it was just the wax being cut from the digital signal onto the record itself. 
And I'm thinking to myself, how the fuck does that work? I'm literally watching it being made, but the actual acoustic mm -hmm. aspects of it is fascinating. I don't know, as an engineer, what can you tell me? Do you, what do you know? It's just like your speaker. No, but that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. <laughs> it's movement. It's just I know it's movement, but you, okay, so it's like your speaker. So your copper wire, you've got two signals coming across a copper mm -hmm. wire, which is a conduit for sound. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I understand all that basics. But how is two speakers in a, in a, you know, in the three cones moving simultaneously all at the same time while pushing all these multiple frequencies simultaneously. If you said, okay, well, it's going to move at 440 and then it's going to be A and then it's going to move at C. Oh, and now there's going to be this drum mm -hmm. beat and there's going to be that drum beat. Like from a serial or yeah, a, a serial perspective, that makes perfect sense. I can understand how that signal can change. But mm -hmm. from a parallel perspective, how it's actually being pushed through the copper, through the cone, amplified through the air, and you're hearing all these things simultaneously, I don't understand the physical conveyance of that. Yeah. Well, you have the, you have the positive waveform and the negative side of the waveform. It's moving back and forth, you know, in electrical field. And you have... <clears throat> You know, multiple frequencies that you're referring to are just waveforms on top of waveforms. You have a, a low frequency and you have a mid-range frequency and the mid-range frequency is moving up and down on top of the bass. It's like waves on top of a wave. So I get that if, if we're sitting here as a three-piece and I'm playing the bass and you're playing the drums and you're playing the violin. Like I understand you've got different sources and those different sources are blending naturally in the forced air and molecules and how that works. I just don't understand how these things together, if I'm playing an A and you're playing a C and he's playing a drum, how that sound is being pushed through the air. I don't, it just doesn't, it, it baffles me like mechanically and I mm -hmm. cannot get over that. Like, and, and that's why Thomas Edison is a fucking genius and I'm near homeless. Like that's what it comes <laughs> down to. <laughs> well, Google compression and rarefication and there's, there's your answer because that's what a speaker does. I understand compression. That makes perfect sense. You make the loud louder, the soft softer. I understand compression. I don't know what the fuck rarefication means. No, compression and rarefication is the speaker movement. When it, when it moves, when, when the positive side of a waveform hits the speaker, hits the coil of the speaker, thrust the energy thrusts the speaker forward, it compresses the air, gets it moving. Then the negative side of the waveform hits the coil and it sucks it back, as it rarefies it, it sucks it back. So the air is moving, it's pushing and pulling, it's compressing and, and expanding all uh, at the same time, well not the same time, but in super, super fast serial form. I tried to make a speaker when I was like in the 11th grade it did not work very well. <laughs> Somebody gave me a bunch of cones and I was like, oh, let me just try and like build a box. It was fucking horrible. Like <laughs> would barely pass signal. And I was like, I'm never building speakers again. How'd I got it right? I don't know. Maybe I'd be like the next great speaker person, but I'm yeah. not. You ever put your hands on a speaker when it's playing music? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite is if you've seen when people turn a speaker where the cone is facing up and they'll put like sand on top mm -hmm. of it and you can see the yeah, waveforms. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's fascinating. So, that's formats, right? Our boy Don Roby, the impresario label empire, he sees what's coming. He knows that these format wars are out there. So, Johnny Ace's next record, Never Let Me Go, he mastered to both 78 and 45. My darling, 
this dude was a fucking one-hit wonder. So, like, I mean, he just took the same song, same thing, and did it again and again and again. Like, each one of these ballads, for as good as they are, I think individually, like, I don't know. Copy and paste. Copy and paste. You don't get a real sense of, like, what Johnny Ace wanted to do as an artist. Like, did he even have right. artistic aspirations? Did he have the creativity? Or was he literally just the mouthpiece, just the cog in the machine? He's the know? player. Because there is no evolution to this, and it could be why it's declining. I mean, it's just there's no evolution to the music thus far. It's a factory. Right. My thing is trying to imagine myself sitting and listening to a, a whole show of him doing this. Right. And there's yeah, not a lot of variation. Uh, it's just the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. yeah, but you're also not a 19-year-old black woman in the mid-1950s. Uh, I Trust me, I get that this stuff pulls at people's heartstrings and stuff, and but when you go to see a show, you need a little bit of dynamic. Th that's music, right? So you need, that's art. You need di dynamics, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? You need to have push and pull. It's the reason why an Oreo cookie sells because it's sweet and it's chocolate and it's vanilla, it's soft and it's hard, right? You need that sort of mm -hmm. uh, dynamic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Johnny's not there. So this is where maybe the engine starts to run out. So he's got this hot streak. Uh, stalling a fair amount, right? Not every release is a smash hit. This new demographic of the white teenager, they hadn't really picked up on this. It wasn't really in their radar, right? Uh, Johnny is definitely staying within the bounds of respectability. Uh, but here's 1954. Compare this with Elvis, which, you know, right on the cusp we i mean we were talking about elvis off the air but like you know where you know this is good right 10 times of this song maybe it's not that great but if you compare just the rawness of what elvis was doing or jerry lee right or and maybe it's unfair to compare anybody to elvis um it's it's just different it's you can see where it's it's starting to get a little stayed right um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the change in medium because this is interesting to me because we are old enough now. When I was a kid, I, my first record was a record, right? And then I bought a bunch of 45s and, you know, Seth's a couple years, not much, a year's younger than us. But, like, then it was tapes, right? And then we saw the CDs and then CDs died and then it was people just downloading and then mp3s mp3s right and then streaming so that's like five iterations in the 30 years that i've really been listening to rock and roll and it's not insignificant right those are like pretty dramatic changes that have shaken the industry up essentially from this time frame right the 45 is about to be taken over right the lp <clears throat> is just a couple years beyond that so from when i bought michael jackson's uh, thriller as my first record from Kmart in 19, let's say 86 to today, there, there's been an even more rapid amount of changes. We didn't even include what do you call it? The eight tracks, right? Mm -hmm. Huh? I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, medium changes to me is sometimes it feels like the industry is, there's a big play when, when they started to remaster a bunch of CDs and the, 
80s and late 80s and early 90s. It was another cash grab for you to go <clears throat> turn around and buy all the records you already owned. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. I mean, each medium, for the most part, served a function. You know, you could talk fidelity, too. But, you know, cassettes were popular because you could play them in your car. Portability. Yeah. Portability. You got Walkman. You got your car stereo. You can record your own stuff to them. You can make mixtapes. I mean, the, you know, when, when, when we went from records to tapes, I mean, yeah, you could, you could get mad at the industry for saying, well, you know, they're just making people buy shit again. But I don't know. It's different now. I mean, back then, I remember stereos. You know, we had component stereos where you just bought another machine. Right, right, and right. And I right. never was the one person that went and bought. And my parents weren't either the people that went and rebought everything just because now they have a cassette deck. They, you know, my mom still listened to records. She had her vinyl. But now going forward, I'm just going to start buying these tapes. I'm going to join Columbia House and I'm going to get tapes and and same thing with CDs, you know. And I I had multiple I and I had reel to reel machines too. I had yet another format yeah, that yeah. I would make things on. And remember those motherfuckers tried to get us to buy mini CDs. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah, yeah. Plus your disc players. Yeah. yeah, mini disc and digital cassettes. There's dats. There's oh a bunch yeah, of yeah. They tried to do dats as a. As a, I as have a, a ton salesman. of pre-recorded DATs in, in, in a drawer over there. So for those who don't know, DAT is digital audio tape, which was used oftentimes as a mastering medium, as a secondary uh, format in recording studios after they had recorded, and they would take that to uh, mastering studios or, or places to go make the, the tape itself. But there was a period <laughs> of time where they tried to make it, and they're just these tiny little cassettes almost like a tiny vhs yep uh and it has that same vhs type mechanism where it comes back and the fidelity is super high on it um but they tried to make that a, a sellable medium to listen to music yep. as well and actually the industry pushed back against it because people were afraid that you could clone things and make it exactly like the cd home <laughs> taping is killing the industry people <laughs> <laughs> i first, remember first record i ever recorded was on that was it really? Yeah, I was 17 at a studio in Knoxville. We recorded all on that, yeah. But it seems like when I was coming up, I mean, yeah, I'm, I pretty much went from vinyl to cassettes. I mean, my parents listening to vinyl, to cassettes. Cassettes are really my thing, my generation. Sure, like yeah. when I, But the format changes to me, at least as a naive young person, always seemed like the goal was always fidelity. Mm -hmm. The goal was always as close to what the artist heard in the studio when they recorded it. But but then, you know, when you go from CD to MP3, then it's we're, we're okay with a loss in fidelity because of the portability, because of the ease of, mm -hmm. ease of use, because you can put a thousand songs in your pocket with an iPod kind of thing. Like we, we traded off on fidelity. MP3 sound like shit. Mm -hmm. We traded off on that for portability and for, you know... Um, just uh, yeah, access. Well, people will say that about cassettes. I mean, a lot of people. It's it's not really that debatable that vinyl really does sound better than tape, cassette tapes. You know. But do you think vinyl sounds better than a CD? No, but that wasn't the lineage. You know, a lot I mean, of people do. It wasn't, but people think that though. You know, there's this warmth thing that they think they get, and well, I'm like, well, there is there is there is a thing that mastering engineers have to do to make vinyl work. And they don't have to do that for for CDs. So albums that were mastered for vinyl 
do have a certain kind of energy to them, you know. A deeper bass, and that's one of the reasons why DJs they're, for they're certain, compressed harder yeah. to keep shit from skipping. There's there's things that now you would argue, well, that's not what the musicians intended when they were in the studio. It was just mm -hmm. something that the mastering guy had to do. Unless you were goddamn Steely Dan, right? <laughs> but if you listen to Steely Dan on vinyl, it there you can hear every breath, right? And it's you know, uh, granted the CDs are similar, but yeah, no, I was always a fan of the digital. Once we went digital, to me, it was no going back. But yeah. I just remember listening to CDs thinking like, wow, I hear things I've never heard before. I just remember the presence of CDs. I felt yeah. like everything yeah, was yeah. so much more present. Clear. But, yeah. but here's the talk about the access portion of it. Now I can listen to any record from any artist at any point in time for $9.99 a month with no commercials. And I do, right? Now, it's the consumptive model on how you consume model. Because I'm always like two clicks behind because I just have a problem with consuming music in different ways. But like I listen to Spotify at the house when it's just me and the girls and we're hanging out like uh, to put on background music or when I'm at the gym. Mm -hmm. But when I listen to records now, if it's not uh, a specific your band just put out this record. Yeah, I'll go buy that record and I'll listen to it. But I don't buy a new uh, album on vinyl because that's just stupid to me. I'm not going to go to Hot Topic or what's the Urban Outfitter store and spend $28 on a new record because it's a record, because it's vinyl. Fuck you, man. I've been buying records this whole goddamn time. I've been making records this whole time mm -hmm. spending my money at united record pressing this so you don't need to sell me on how fucking cool it is fuck you my <laughs> issue right so fuck you then like i actually have like a lot of kind of beef not with the plants i mean they deserve all the money that they get because but the thing is is indie rockers punk rockers djs like electronic music, they kept those those tiny businesses alive for about 25 years. Now all of a sudden Taylor Swift is out there every record store day repressing some single as a special edition. Fine. I don't have a problem with the business mechanics of it, but I don't need assholes lining up at the record store and camping out to buy some. Like I'm not a fetishist. I'm not a collective. Like I like it, right? I've gotten to the point where I now consume the majority of my music on CD. Why? Because I have every record that has ever been recorded since the beginning of goddamn time. That is too much for me to go through. If I sit in the car and I got a 30-minute drive like I did over here, I'm not going to be like, okay, well, what should I listen to? The very first Mongolian throat singers? Like, no, it's just like I want... So I go back to... This is the DJ. I was a DJ in, in college. And so like, I, I want a hot rotation. I need to have... 10 records in my car, 10 CDs in this instance, and I have the same thing on, in my home system and on my vinyl turntable. I want, th this is my hot 10, and these are the records that I go to, and then you just cycle those out, right? Because when I got in the car to come over here tonight, it was bad religion because it was the new record, and that car, it's going to stay in the car for the next six months. You bought the new bad religion on CD? Purposely, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have no idea when I'm the last time I bought a CD. Yeah. Like no idea. Yeah. Cause I enjoy that, right? Like to me, because what I what I can't do is pick up my phone and then scroll through every artist or every release 
or whatever. It, it, a buddy of mine, I went to his house like 15 years ago, and he's like, oh, man, I, yeah, I like Bad Religion. I was like, oh, yeah, what's your favorite record? He's like, I don't know. What do you mean you don't fucking know? Fuck you. And, I, and he's like, well, this is what I got. And he just went out and downloaded every single you know, and stole every single song. Okay, well, that's not how you consume music. That's not how it's not meant to be consumed. True. It's meant to be on a 45 or on an EP or on a CD or, God forbid, a triple record, right? Like, fuck you, Clash. Like, I listen <laughs> to Sandinista and I understand what you try to do. But, like, the point is, is that, like, that's how it's not supposed to be. This is every record that Kiss ever put out just scroll through it on your time it, it's meant to be intimate yeah or maybe i'm just well the vast projecting. majority of music that i listen to now is streaming that's how you consume it is it is um and uh there's a little bit of guilt there because i there like should to, be well i like to support artists yeah i understand yeah i understand um i do buy vinyl f from the artists i like if i go to a show I'm, nine times out of ten I'll, i will buy vinyl or merch, whatever. Sure. But not fast pussycat. <laughs> no, no, I'll skip her. I'll skip her. Uh, but but also because the main thing that excites me about music is finding new music. It's the easiest way to read an article in Wire magazine or to have a friend tell me about it and I'm like instantly I can go and decide if I like it. Now if I like it, that starts a relationship with that artist or that, you know, that band that eventually they're going to get some money out of me. As soon as I can basically give them some money, I will. But but that constant need for discovery, like there's nothing like that. I mean, uh, there's nothing better for that than streaming. You know? I, I, I don't disagree, but I think my, the issue is the disposability or the just sheer volume. You put those two things together and it's like, it's it's almost like porn where it's like, yeah, man, sex is great, but... If it's when you were however age, hey man, there's a pair of boobs and that shit lasted you in your brain for <laughs> fucking ever, right? Like you're still carrying that shit. Uh, or you've got every pair of boobs that ever existed in three minutes on your phone and you carry it around everywhere with you. Biologically, we're supposed to, it's supposed to be the former and not the latter. And I think you port that same sort of idea to art, right? If I said to you, hey, man, let's go see this newest Rodin sculpture exhibit, right? And it's really great. And we're going to go and we're going to explore it. And we're going to learn everything about French sculpture in the mid 1800s. Like that's an experience, right? And you're going to feel through it. But if you could download every great French sculpture from the mid to late 1800s, then it, it loses some, there's no discovery. There's no reading the liner notes and go, oh man, no effects, really loves, no use for a name. And they say, go buy their records. Or every Pennywise record says, you should go and, you know, also th they thank this other band or, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, you're not reading. I, I sat there in the car while listening to this new Bad Religion, like while I was getting ready to come to the house. And I'm literally yeah. reading the liner notes. Okay, where was it recorded? <laughs> where was it done? You know? Right, but I love that. I'm a graphic designer. I mean, I design album art. Like, I love that. There's, and you're there's good at it. Thanks. There's nothing that can uh, replace that. But in terms of just sheer music, like I'm not intimidated by how much music is out there because I, I don't 
I always know what I'm looking for. I don't ever. That's sort a of, difference between you and me. You are yeah. just that much more. Zen I, I don't I ever open Apple Music on my phone and say, "Hmm," like I always open it with purpose, and it's usually because some other type of media has led me to try to find this sort of music, like find a new artist or find an old artist or find something I haven't heard before. It feels like research. It just yeah. feels like going to the library and you know, reading reading a portion of a book that you want to read. So that's interesting. And I'm going to turn this conversation around to Casey because this is the argument that I've heard since the invention of Pro Tools is that when the Beatles recorded Sgt. Pepper's, it was eight track, right? And yeah. there was eight tracks. Right. So the whole point is, is that you had a constricted medium. And when you have a constricted medium, it forces you to get creative because you and I have been in a recording studio together. And when you've got unlimited time and unlimited tracks, you have a tendency to not focus and you fucking jerk around. And I go to the goddamn Walgreens and there's 37 types of deodorant. I get analysis paralysis and I'm like, well, which one should I buy? Yeah. My wife goes, I'm going to just buy the most expensive toothpaste there is. And I look at her like, what the fuck are you doing? But th th all of these things are still human elements. And if yeah. you say, well, I've got unlimited takes, let me try and do this one more time. Or maybe I should put this shaker on this record. Or maybe I should double the vocals over here. And then, then it just, you get Chinese democracy. Do you listen to that record? Fuck no. Why you know what? I listen to that. I listened to it 20 times. <laughs> I kept fucking trying. I didn't claim my Dr. Pepper, and I'm still pissed about all the time that I wasted on that fucking record, and it's because that motherfucker, nobody told him no. Yeah. Nobody told him no. He had unlimited money, unlimited time. There was no Izzy to write good songs. There was no Slash to say, hey, bro. Maybe you should try this. That's why Paul McCartney sucked in the 80s, right? Like, nobody had, nobody told him no. And the no is, there's only like three deodorants. The no is, buy the cheapest toothpaste. The no is, there's only four tracks. The no is, it's not every song recorded for human fucking history. Yeah. We are so far off base. But this is clearly <laughs> an important thing to me. If I'm full of shit, I'm full of shit. I may be wrong. You're not full of shit. No, you're not. I I totally agree, but I would also argue I, I agree with you hundred percent. But technology, whether you're talking streaming or talking multi-track recording, it it is it's just a tool, and it's what you make of it. Of course, you can treat this like a like a four-track tape machine if you want. Say I'm only going to turn on four tracks, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do all my pre-production. I'm going to get my shit together. Before I do this, which is what they, everybody else before this shit existed had to do. Right, yeah. And that's why those records sound great. has nothing to do with the technology. Zero. Everybody goes, I'm going to buy an old EMI console, and I'm going to buy a Neve console, and I'm going to do this, because all those, everything that goes through that's magic. Uh, it's the work they put in. It's, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. what people had, it's the fact that they had to learn an instrument, practice for 10,000 hours, 10, which is what it hours. takes to become good at something. Yeah get songs, collaborate with other human beings and all the other aspects, and then do the pre-production, you know, in some form or another, whether it's developing the whole record or one song at a time, that's what makes all those records magical, you know? And honest to God, if Bach had had MIDI, who knows what he would have come up with, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he didn't. 
And he literally forced the world to come up with another way to temper pianos so he can modulate keys. And, you know, it's like, it's always, you know, that's, but that's the beauty of it. You you keep pushing the edge of whatever the technology is at the time. And at that moment, you get something that's unique and new for the first time. And it's cool. And then eventually it gets beat like, you know. Like, it gets like beat to death, yeah. right? And now we're mid-period Johnny Ace. The shit's getting stale. The medium is changing. Nobody's keeping up. But here we are. There's a white guy out of Memphis, his own fucking town, being recorded by another white guy who says, hey, there's a market for this type of music. Elvis is coming out on 45. He took Big Mama Thornton. He took Bill Monroe. And said, I'm going to make that one thing, right? Obviously, he was molded by Sam Phillips, probably one of the most important people ever to come into my life that I'm not related to, okay? Sam Phillips, personal hero. That is nine seasons of this episode, which we will cover at a different point in time. Uh, But it is the most important thing in rock and roll. And anybody doesn't believe me, you can fight me. I don't care. Like, you can dislike Elvis. Sure, that's fine. You can, but the importance of what they did on Union Street at the Memphis Recording Studio or on Sun Records, let alone the stuff that, like, came out that came to chess, it was so much more electric. Johnny Ace was great, and his Jump Blues stuff was upbeat. But you can see where this point now, it's shifting. It's like a shift in the musical landscape over the course of three years from these sort of plaintive longing heart ballads uh, that were sort of bifurcated racially to Elvis saying, hey, I'm going to take... And by the way, I mean, I, I, I know this is a person that likes music... He was doing it, but he was also being encouraged by Sam Phillips. This was an artistic decision as well as a monetary decision. It sounds racist and in, in ex post facto, but the fact of the matter is, is that it was a, a market decision based off the political climate, and it is not nearly as, in my opinion, as horrible as it seems. It wasn't stealing black music. He was taking good music and taking it to the rest of the market. Was there any was there a black artist around the time when Elvis was doing this that was I know we're on Johnny Ace here, but aside from Johnny Ace, like was there a black artist that had that much mm, I don't know. Was there was there anybody else doing what Elvis did? Uh uh Helen Wolf, in my opinion, who was recorded, I'm pretty sure, either right at the same time or right before Elvis. I know it was recorded in Sun given away future nine episodes. But <laughs> Howlin' Wolf, who's also one of the most important people in my life, because I adore Howlin' Wolf. Like, that is electric. That shit is on fire. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the difference. Howlin' Wolf was like a 28 in, that, in the pop world, older, not a particularly good-looking guy, amazing player, amazing singer in his own way. Where Elvis was this young teenage fucking yeah. sex bomb with a killer yeah. voice, right? Yeah. All right. What sells, right? Johnny Ace was a young killer sex throb. He wasn't up there shaking his hips. He didn't want to stand up. They gave him a piano player. He was shy. Well, you know what happened? He didn't like being on the road all the time. So Johnny Ace is the living embodiment of the Don Roby machine 
in terms of Duke slash Peacock Records and Don's whole Houston Music Emporium taking things out of Tennessee, right? He's on the road for two years, never really going back to Memphis, didn't really have a home. I heard Nikki Six the other day talking about being on the road on their last tour, and he's like, do you know how bad it sucks to not go to your house for two years? Because somebody was like, oh, you, you know, now that this new movie came out, which is a great movie, like, like, do you know how bad it sucks to not go home for two years? It's like, it fucking sucks. I think I'm however old he is, late 50s. It's like, no, I like my house. You know, like, I got a wife and my shit's there, you know? Like, and mm-hmm. it's different when you're in your early 20s or early 19, like, you know, I mean, I've been gone for months at a time and I loved it. But like, if you ask me now in my early 40s to be gone for two years, I'd be like, can't do it. Yeah, yeah, like my stuff. What about my stuff? <laughs> what do you mean? You went to Boston for two years? Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's a different story. Mm. So, set the. It doesn't matter because he didn't care about his record collection because he puts it all fucking streaming anyway. All my <laughs> records are at the house, man. So you left the record collection <laughs> with your brother. I did. I did. I finally got it all back. I got plenty of records, by the way. <laughs> so... Johnny, he was never the mastermind. He was never the a. Uh, he was never the the ringleader. And to to Seth's point, like, what was he doing? He was the performer, right? He liked to play, obviously. He liked to sing, but he 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 was the guy that showed up and sang songs. That's how it was, right? There wasn't much of a mold to do other than that, right? Uh, he didn't seem to have any interest or push towards it otherwise. And if it wasn't for Roby, and more importantly. The woman behind the Roby Empire, Evelyn Johnson, he probably wouldn't be where he is, right? I mean, he's got great talent, but you still need, especially people that are a little bit uh, unambitious is, is what Johnny seems to be. You need to have that machine behind you. How many fucking artists do you guys know that are, oh, I can't do that, I'm an artist. I'm not saying you got to go get a law degree and write your own contracts, Show up, play some shows, sell your product, talk to people. It's not behind this veneer, like just show up and work. This is a job. Yeah, until you have a lot of success, you have to do every job. Right, right, right. I'm not saying you need to be Fugazi. And you can you can say what you want about Fugazi. EMK still has tens of millions of dollars, so clearly he's doing okay. You know, but you, you you don't need to pretend like you're Scott Walker everywhere you go and everything you do needs to be behind a veil of mystery. And I'm yeah. not disparaging Scott Walker. It's obviously amazing. Yeah, please don't. No, but, right. not every, but not everybody can be an enigma like that. Right, you know? right, yeah. right, right. Somebody's got to show up and like turn shit on. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. Somebody's got to load shit in. And, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and at this point, if it wasn't for Roby and Evelyn Johnson, Johnny wouldn't have left the YMCA. He would have been a guy playing piano at a house shows and on Beale Street. And there's actually nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do, right? And I'm not casting aspirations and I'm not making judgments because my own goddamn city has, I don't know, 10, 20 million people in a city of 2 million that, that live that <laughs> life, right? Like our mailman is that person who's like, ah, I can sing, right? And let me, <laughs> let me sing, you know? Um, no, you're, you're not going to just, you got to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's work. Oh, yeah. It's work, people. 
So, fun fact, the Buffalo Booking Agency, under the tutelage of Evelyn Johnson and, and the, the namesake of Don Roby, obviously we talked about how they continue to book B.B. King and a bunch of other artists that were not there. This is, gets to be interesting in the beginning histories of rock and roll is uh, they added the Ike and Tina Turner review as a live act. This kills me. So, Tina fucking Turner. Ike Turner. They're booking them. They didn't sign them on their record label, right? They didn't sign them to their publishing. They signed and worked Johnny Ace. Now, if any of you can go back 50 years and say, who would you like to sign as a publisher? I know what that answer would be, Mm -hmm. quite clearly, for like a thousand reasons. But Don and Evelyn said, Johnny is more valuable to us Big Mama Thornton is more valuable to us. Gatemouth Brown is more valuable to us, both in terms of revenue, in terms of sales, in terms of publishing, than the likes of B.B. King. Oh, we'll still push and sell and, and make his shows. Than the likes of B.B. King, than the likes of Ike and Tina Turner. But were, were Roby and Evelyn Johnson really taking on new artists at this point? They seem to be a little content with their stable at this point, right? Uh, well, I mean, Were they more still like, signing people? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Big Mama Thornton, Willie Mae was their 27th act. So the, clearly they weren't... Yeah, they're not shying away from it, but I just wonder when you come into contact with people like Tina Turner, I mean, I guess that's your point, but... That, that, that is my point. But they've also probably got this machine rolling and they're like, you know, do we really need... How many artists can we develop? Versus how many artists can we book? We can book a hell of a lot more than we can. Right, develop. it's so much easier, right? Right. Let's just cash less, the easy less check, money. maybe. Yeah, you know. I, I think the thing is, is that what they said was we don't want another unknown artist to develop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll book it. We'll take the we'll take the the revenue from yeah, the, the from the, the box office on the show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do that. We'll get those guarantees. But goddamn, like, whew. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Highs oh, undoubtedly right, and you, you and you don't know what you don't know. Listen, mm-hmm. Mad Max was decades away. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> she's still rolling to the Thunderdome. <laughs> she hasn't gone beyond it yet. Listen, we don't need another hero. Okay, that's what Don <laughs> Roby said. That's where they got the idea from. <laughs> that's good. You see what I did there? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so the interesting thing is, is that at this moment. The booking agency, though, seems to be the thing that makes Roby and Evelyn Johnson the most amount of money, right? And the people making them the most amount of money on that at this 1954 late period is B.B. King and Ike Turner Review. The House Peacock slash Duke artists weren't that much of a draw because I just named three of them, right? Johnny Ace, who's obviously doing well. Willie Mae, who had a hit, was doing pretty good uh gatemouth brown and then a couple of the other legacy duke guys but other than that there's a lot of spiritual artists not that many secular artists so like they saw something but i think they were just one they didn't know what the fuck they were doing they didn't know what they had who does how do you make this work right now we're gonna pause and get pretty close to finishing out this portion of the conversation and it's fascinating to me because there's a very strong argument you can make, and most musicologists would. Oh, I should, I'm getting a little too ahead of myself. What's the very first rock and roll record? 
Don't don't overthink it. Just say what you think comes to your mind. I want to say Elvis, but yeah, sure, of course, right. I mean, that's what I would probably say too. Sure, sure, sure. Have you guys been to Graceland? No. Been to Sun, never been to Graceland. Fuck both you guys. Okay, so when you go to Graceland, when you go through the back portion, what was the racquetball court, then turned into the karate dojo, and then I think it becomes in the garage. There is signs where Elvis Presley Corporation and Elvis himself it says, "I didn't invent rock and roll." No, I did not invent rock and roll. And any person, logically, you would think that from our sort of just. Whiteness. Yeah, I, do, I almost <laughs> said it, but I didn't say it, but you're 100% correct. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, where we come from culturally, sure, right? Yeah. Listen, this is my culture, people. I'm white. My legions of fans have not picked up on that yet. <laughs> I can't deny who I am. But he denied it at the time, and rightfully so. There is no very first, no real uh, decision on what the very first rock and roll record was or is. Now, there are other historians, musicologists, critics, fans who would say, well, if it's not Elvis Presley, then maybe it's Bill Haley with Rock Around the Clock. Which, yep, I've heard that. You can make an argument for. And there's entire books on this, and we'll probably cover this in a, a couple of episodes later down the road. There are people who say that it was Ike Turner, which I think is probably, in my opinion, the closest to what you can get. Ike Turner recording Rocket 88 with Jackie Brenson on vocals. So oddly um, not credited to Ike, but credited to Jackie, who was the piano player, guitar player in the band, I don't remember, recorded by one Sam Phillips at the Memphis Recording Studio for Chess Records, Rocket 88, named after the Oldsmobile car could easily make the case for the very first rock and roll I've, record. I've heard that argument. More importantly, and more germane to our conversation, is that it was Johnny Ace. And in the next episode, we're going to discuss why Johnny Ace very well may have made the very first rock and roll record ever. But first, Johnny's going to get a gun. <laughs> 